0: Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joe Weinbanks, Barb McQuaid, Kimberly Atkins-Store, and me, Joyce Vance. Today, we'll be discussing the shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs, subsequent shootings, and the impact of hate speech. New information about the Supreme Court and pay-to-play access to the justices and developments and investigations into the former president. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. On December 3rd, we'll publish our 100th full episode. It's sort of hard to believe. To celebrate the anniversary, we want to hear from you, our listeners, and invite you to answer this question. Through our first 100 episodes, what's the most important thing you've learned from the Hashtag Sisters Law podcast? Please share your biggest learnings or takeaways with us on Twitter and Instagram using Hashtag Sisters 100. That's Hashtag Sisters Law 100. We can't wait to hear from you. But before we dig into this week's news, I have a question for my sisters. I love Thanksgiving. I think it's this low pressure holiday, no gifts, no presents, really good food and family. And I'm always intrigued by the question of, do you follow old traditions or do you make up new ones? This year, we returned to an old tradition in our house. It used to be our tradition the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving to invite friends and neighbors over for a glass of the Beaujolais Nouveau before they went back and did their cooking and and their preparation. And then we had our fourth child and our lives sort of fell apart because he was the high maintenance baby of all time. Um, I like to blame him for that. It really wasn't his fault. But so we didn't for 20 years um, engage in that tradition. And this year, we bought some of the Nouveau Beaujolais when it was released, had a bunch of friends and neighbors over, had a great time. And it was lovely to restore that old tradition. Um, So how about you guys, Barb, old traditions or new ones? Well, I don't even know what Nouveau Beaujolais is, so I guess I'm very passe. <laughs> yeah. It's the Beaujolais Nouveau. I have no palate See? for what like I don't have high <laughs> high-end taste, but one year somebody introduced it to us. It's released every mm-hmm. year the Thursday before Thanksgiving. So it's fun to have. Sounds it sounds delicious. Now, our tradition, our old tradition and
1: our new one is watching the Lions play football. And <laughs> um, and the tradition seems to be watching the Lions lose on Thanksgiving. And so that tradition uh, stood firm uh, again this year. And Joyce was texting me during the game saying, oh, they're going to win. This is so great. And I said, oh, Joyce, <laughs> dear Joyce, naive Joyce, you're new here, aren't you? I this is know, how it rolls the Lions. They suck you in. It looks like, oh my gosh, this is going to be the day. And then somehow they find some new and creative way to lose. <laughs> you really have to tip your hat to the uh, endless creativity. But it really is uh, the, you know, Charlie
0: Brown kicking the football year after year. But Yet it's part of the tradition and we love it. And so that's what we did. I enjoy it too. Kim, how about you? I know that you've got Detroit ties, but yes. old traditions or new traditions in addition to the game.
2: Well, I guess with that, it was a bit of old because My mom did the same thing when I talked to her on the phone Thanksgiving morning. She's like, the Lions look like they're going to do it. And I'm like, eh. <laughs> have you met them? <laughs> so that that was a little bit of the old that was thrown in but the new tradition so the the past couple of uh Thanksgivings that we were able to I've gotten together with my husband's family uh my in-laws my other in-laws and um so I have been uh traditionally bringing them the new tradition is I bring a, a pie a sweet potato pie and Joyce it's funny that you mm. call this a, a low uh a, a low stress holiday because when you're cooking food for your new <laughs> You know family for the first yes. couple times. I was so stressed out, and honestly, on Thanksgiving, um, this time for the first time, as I was putting it together. I just did not put that pressure on myself. I'm like, you know what? It's a pie. It's a sweet potato pie. I know how to make this. I'm just going to make it. I forgot an ingredient. After it was already in the oven, I said, you know, it's fine. It'll be fine. And it was fine. (laughs) So it was the first time that I really relaxed enough to make this a low stress holiday uh, with the stores.
0: I love that. You know, you and my mother-in-law would have been best friends because one year she um, used uh, those pre-made pie crusts and she left the paper in the pie crust before she put <laughs> the filling in.
1: Oh, man, and and I you did, have far. to understand yeah, she,
0: I mean, Helen was like, you know, her sister's-in-law, Her my father-in-law's Family, they were all these wonderful, perfect housekeepers, and mom really didn't care about keeping house or cooking or anything. And so she loved the fact that she did that. And she told me for years. And you know, after I did that, my sisters-in-law never asked me to make anything for the holidays ever again. <laughs> Play, see, <laughs> it's all part of
1: the big plan.
0: <laughs> Jill, what about y'all? I mean, no Detroit Lions in Chicago, but new new traditions. No are Detroit
3: old. Lions. The game, uh, our game, was on in the background, but. I combined old and new. I celebrated with my friends, um, as we've talked about before, one of my quints, uh, the five group of five women that has weekly political conversations, but I... Brought my usual Jello molds. One is Michelle Kumbo's cranberry mold. Mm. Um, you all know Michelle, Michelle Combo from, from MSC. MSC. Michelle
0: hasn't shared that recipe yes, with yes. us. Michelle, you've been yes. holding oh. out on the rest of us.
3: Yes. yes, yes. Well, it's it's wonderful, and I posted it last week on our show notes. I also made my famous lime Jello mm. mold uh, from the Jello cookbook, lime pear mold. But this year, I made stuffed mushrooms garlic bread stuffed mushrooms that I learned to make this week on Marissa Rothkoff's show. And so I know some of you have been on with her, and this was learning to use my air fryer. And this will now be a new tradition. It was quite a big smashing success. Everybody loved we my mushrooms. We need a
0: total shout out to Marissa Rothkoff's. I can't say it, Marissa Rothkoff's Secret Life of Cookies podcast. I get so many good recipes from her.
3: This is a good one. And I will post this one on this week's show because that's my new tradition. And I'm even thinking of enlarging it to put it in a big portobello Mm. um, and making it a main course as opposed to just a little mushroom you know, that's a one-bite appetizer. I think it would make a great main okay, course. Okay, Barb it's is giving delicious. you the
0: look like too much cooking, Jill. <laughs> <laughs> I, I
1: yeah, went I
3: was-
1: on um, Marissa Marissa's podcast on the condition that we not talk about cooking and she could. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> Even though it's a podcast about cooking. <laughs> <laughs> she shared that with me. <laughs> I actually realized five minutes before we were going on, I went, wait a second, how am I going to cook with you? my entire setup is in my living room and how am I going to get a microphone into my kitchen? And she said, well, you could use your audio on the computer. Well, how am I going to get the, the camera to focus on what I'm doing? And how am I, no, I, she said, well, let's just make it easy. You'll watch me. <laughs> and so I learned, and it was really partly because I wanted to learn more recipes from my air fryer, which was a gift from my best friends. Um, and which is an amazing device if you learn how to use it right. And this recipe makes the crunchiest, crispiest mushroom appetizers because of the air fryer. Um, but I made a mistake, and when I reheated them at my friend's house, I kept them wrapped in tinfoil, and they got soft, which they tasted the same, and they were delicious, but it didn't have that crunch. So just a warning, if you're cooking in an air fryer, it's probably best to serve it right away from your air fryer, not to reheat them in someone else's oven.
1: Well, there was some somber news uh, over the past couple of weeks, more mass shootings. Last weekend, of course, a gunman killed patrons at Club Q, an LGBT club in Colorado Springs, and we had barely started grieving the lives lost there when a Walmart manager in Chesapeake, Virginia, opened fire on his co-workers in a break room, killing himself and six others earlier this week. Uh, And those two shootings came right after a University of Virginia student opened fire on a bus during a school trip, and killed three fellow students who were members of the football team. It it seems like mass shootings are becoming part of everyday life in America. Jill, uh, let's get behind these statistics a little bit. Uh, I mean, it really feels like there's one of these every time we turn around. What does it mean to call something a mass shooting? And are there more than we've seen in the past? Or does, does it just seem that way?
3: So that's a great question. And the answer for what is a mass shooting, it has been defined as where four or more people are killed. And so these are all where at least four people, not counting the shooter, have died. And in terms of whether they are increasing, first of all, where is Steve Kornacki when we need him? (laughs) Uh, I'd love to have him describe this, but the answer is, We are on a trend upward, although so far this year we may not beat last year's record, which was an all-time high, but we'll be really close. There have been more than 600 mass shootings this year. Just think about that. 600. That's more than, it's almost two a day. And How many do we really hear about? That's what's so stunning. We should be hearing about every single one of these every day from every source of information that we could possibly have. We get the ones that are like Club Q or like the Orlando shooting uh, several years ago in a similar club, but we don't hear about those. And we also don't hear about the shootings like in Chicago where 15 people in a day may die but they happened in seven different incidents. And so they aren't reported. The number of people being killed each year by guns is one that demands attention both as a health hazard and as a gun safety measure legislation necessary issue. We must do something about it.
1: Yeah, um, I, I saw a graphic today that talked about the correlation between stricter gun laws and reductions yes. in gun violence. I thought that was really interesting. Kim, let me ask you about legislation. You know, After those mass shootings we had this summer at the Buffalo Supermarket and then the elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, Congress actually passed bipartisan legislation to address gun violence for the first time in like 30 years. What did that legislation do? And you know, is it in effect yet? Uh, do these recent shootings suggest it's not working or do we need to do more?
2: Yeah, I think uh, so. The law did go into effect. It was signed into law back in July by the president. Um, But I think it's an issue of this being too little. It's a drop in the bucket of what is needed. And it's also a reminder that there are laws in place that just aren't used uh, to prevent this. So the law did several things, uh, including barring people who uh, have been convicted of domestic abuse, even if it's against a dating partner, not just a spouse or former spouse, bar them from owning guns. Uh, It expands background checks for people between the ages of 18 and 21, younger people. But it also creates incentives for states to pass red flag laws. And these are also called... Uh, extreme risk protection orders. And what that means is that if somebody uh, is known to be a threat to themselves or someone else, you can petition a court, uh, either law enforcement or a family member can petition a court to have that person's guns, uh, guns in their possession removed and prevent them from purchasing guns. Well, in these cases, both Colorado and Virginia already had Red flag laws, and in the case of the Colorado shooter, he had been previously arrested um, in it in connection with a bomb threat. So there are questions as to whether the red flag law there had somebody activated it, have somebody had somebody used it, might have prevented this. There's no sense about that in the Virginia case. It seems that this shooter uh, purchased a gun that morning, legally had no previous arrests. Um, And so it's really unclear. We know a lot less about that case, but it's a possibility that in Colorado, um, the red flag law, had it been used, could have helped. But that's the problem with red flag use, red flag laws, they are underutilized in all of the more than dozen states that have them. Most people don't know about it. If they do, they don't don't use them. And that, I think we need an, an education campaign just to let people know that they exist, how they work and how important they are.
1: Yeah. And there's also hostility to some of these gun laws. You know, there are certainly people who advocate uh, for their Second Amendment rights. And and that's most certainly true under our Constitution. But they perpetuate this myth that the Second Amendment is absolute and that there can be no restrictions on guns, which, as we know, is, is not the case. Even Justice Scalia in the Heller case, which defined gun rights as belonging to individuals said that it doesn't mean that anyone whatsoever can possess any gun whatsoever in any place whatsoever. So uh, these restrictions are permissible. And I also think it is a disservice or perhaps intentional disinformation when people say, well, even this law didn't prevent this attack. Therefore, no laws can stop anybody. So we shouldn't try. The only thing that can stop a bad man with a gun is a good man with a gun, et cetera, et cetera. But I know from my work in national security that... Um, there 's no silver bullet that will solve every problem, but you can certainly reduce the likelihood of an attack by having a number of different solutions in uh, national security. we call it redundancies you you know make sure that you don 't have uh, unscreened people coming across the border and you know you do background checks when people are going to join the government and you have magnetometers at airports uh, you know and you don 't let people bring guns on planes and you have a whole series. Of rules in place to try to catch all the various ways someone might exploit them. So just because one law didn't work in one instance doesn't mean all of them are useless. Um, Joyce, I see another um, interesting fact that's been coming out in Colorado Springs is that the shooter has been charged under state law with the murder of of five people, but also uh, bias-motivated crimes. And in a court appearance this week, lawyers for the shooters said that their client identifies as non-binary. Does that make a difference,
0: for charging uh, hate crime uh, offenses? Yeah, you know, this is such an interesting question, right? Because typically we think about hate crimes as being someone who is uh, maybe from the uh, political right who is engaging in a crime out of hate. But I think the answer to this, Barb, is no, that the shooter's status as a non-binary person does not impact whether or not they can be charged with a hate crime. Hate crime is based on your motive. Clearly, the prosecutors in Colorado believe that they have sufficient evidence to prove under their state statute that that motivation exists. No word yet on whether or not there will be federal charges that will go behind the state ones here or perhaps even um, be filed in place of them at some point. But in reality, the shooter's status does not mean that they can't be charged with a hate crime. It has to do with what was going on in their mind when they committed the crime.
3: Yeah. Barb, could we also add the fact that there's a lot of evidence that that is a defense ploy that he is not, in fact, non-binary? His mother called him he. Neighbors thought of him as he. So uh, this claim that he is a they may not. But can I just say that I'm I'm
0: like sort of withholding judgment in that area, because for so many non-binary people or or people who are lgbtq there is so much trouble within their family and their traditional um uh, upbringing area with accepting their identity that you know i'm I'm willing to accept that at face value and and see how it pans out, whether it's legitimate or not. I just don't think it's a defense, yeah, I think that's
1: a good point jill i I saw some of these same interviews or people who knew him, them uh said that the shooter had expressed a lot of hatred for members of the LGBTQ community. But like Joyce, I guess that doesn't mean uh, we know how that person identifies. Right. And regardless, it's not a legal
2: defense. So um, it, it may be a ploy, right. but it won't be a successful one. <laughs> People can feel, experience right. self-hatred as well. So mm-hmm. as I think the key point is not a defense. I think self-hatred is a big mm-hmm. issue as well. And I agree,
3: it is not a defense even if he even if they are non-binary.
1: Yeah, Jill, let me just ask you a little bit about hate crimes laws, because I hear this from time to time. Um, why it is, isn't it enough just to charge the shooter with murder? That's enough. You know, there's uh life imprisonment is a penalty. We don't need these special rights for certain groups.
3: How do you respond to that? It, it, there's a valid argument there, but I think the reason that there is the extra penalty imposed is that, whatever happens to a particular person who is a member of a protected group happens to every member of that group. They are living in fear and they need protection. Um, And in this case, I'm using they in the generic they, whether it is based on race or religion or sexual identity. And so there is a reason to have these extra laws. And in some states, for example, there are not bias-based um, additional penalties. So that means that there is also the possibility of a federal interest in protecting a, a particular group. We've seen that happen in a number of cases where the the bias didn't get prosecuted or where there may be an acquittal even on the assault or murder charges. There is this additional possibility of charging someone for a um, race or gender identity, a sexual identity based crime.
1: Yeah, I, I also think, Jill, as you said, um, it protects all members of a group. And it also says that we as a society, whether we're part of that group or not, won't tolerate crimes that target people on the basis of their membership in some demographic group, whether it's, you know, race, gender, uh, sexual orientation, gender identity. So I, I think it is uh, more than just just a murder here when you target people because of those demographics and that kind of crime is especially repugnant in a society like ours that values our pluralistic society. Um, Well, let me um, move on to you, Kim. Um, How how should we think about the Club Q shooting in light of political attacks we have seen directed at the LGBT community?
2: I mean, do they invite this kind of violence? Yeah, I think this goes hand in hand with the issues about hate crimes, whether they are necessary, whether they um, whether any crime should be considered the same, regardless of the motivation. It's not the same. Right. These are, in a way, terror, acts of terror against entire communities. It wasn't just a direct directed to the people who are at Club Q at that moment. Uh, and I think that's precisely why we need hate crimes is because of the motivation. And, and it goes toward making statements, taking action that reverberate throughout uh, the LGBTQ community and beyond. And in that light, in recent years, there has been a disturbing disturbing increase at the amount of hate and threats That are directed at the LGBTQ community. And I think that is something calling that what it is. Focusing on that is important for law enforcement to understand. It's important for community members to understand. I think it's important for uh, judges when they hear these cases and do sentencing to understand and to think about these these things differently in light of that heightened uh, awareness. This is on top of the already, <laughs> all the other perils that LGBTQ folks face, right? Es- especially transgender folks are-, are assaulted and killed at a dramatically, shockingly higher rate than the national average. Um, hate crimes are nothing new, but the the current uh, climate in our country uh, and increased hate overall has certainly affected them too. So I think focusing on this is extremely important.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how many of our political leaders listen to this podcast, probably a lot of them, but I hereby call upon our political leaders <laughs> to just tone down the rhetoric. Because I think when leaders express this kind of vitriol, it gives license to other people to express it as well, and not just verbally, but through actions. And so, you know, it's, I'm sure there are a thousand factors that contributed to this particular shooting or any particular shooting. But I think you increase the likelihood, and we've talked about this concept before of stochastic terrorism. One person, you know, sort of says uh, bad things should happen. To this group. And then somewhere far away, someone hears that and the message resonates and they take action. And so yep. I think all of our leaders need to um, demonstrate tolerance, demonstrate uh, nonviolence um, and talk about politics without making it uh, you know, per- a personal attack on people based on who they are. Well, let's let's end this conversation on a happier note. Joyce, did you read about that army veteran who took down the club Q shooter?
0: Uh, and can you tell us a little bit about him? You know, I I did. I suspect everybody's seen him on TV at this point, and it really was an uplifting sort of a moment in the middle of a really tough week. But Richard Fierro served for 15 years in the military. He's at the nightclub in Colorado Springs with his family, and they're there to support a friend who's in the drag show that night. Um, and his comments were so sincere and from the heart. He knew that his family was there. His wife was out uh, in an outdoor area where the gunman seemed to be headed. And he said, I knew I just had to take him down. And so that's absolutely what he did. Um, I view this as, as proof that the answer to a bad guy with a gun is a good guy without a gun and with an <laughs> open heart. Mm. Um, it, it seems to me that there's a lesson here that transcends all of the Um, outraged protestations that we hear about people who want their Second Amendment rights uh, enforced in ways that put everybody else in danger. I hope he becomes the poster child um, for how we handle these issues going forward.
1: Yeah. And, you know, um, listeners may have found this already, but uh, Richard Fierro and his wife, Jess Fierro, own a brew pub in Colorado called Atravita. And um, their motto is diversity is on tap. And they sell merch. And I bought a T-shirt just because I wanted to show them some love and some support. So we'll put the link to their website in our uh, show notes in case
3: people want to do that. Great holiday gifts, the Atra Vida Brew Pub merch. When you talk about T-shirts, I just was listening to a documentary on MSNBC and Four Seasons Landscaping sells (laughs) (laughs) T-shirts. Really? They've made millions on oh, their T-shirts. Well, good.
0: I hope that that happens for Mr. Fierro and his family because they certainly deserve it. Yeah.
3: There's reporting about a possible new Supreme Court scandal, one that looks like pay-to-play for access to the justices. This one involves a concerted lobbying campaign by an anti-choice leader and the leak of the Hobby Lobby case about private corporations not having to cover contraceptives for employees if the company had religious objections to contraception. Hobby Lobby was decided years before the leak of the Dobbs decision, but both decisions were written by Justice Alito, so this case has been called, or this scandal has been dubbed, Alito Gate by some. Kim, let's start with you and talk about what are the facts as best we know them from the reporting, including what we know about um, the person who was behind the scandal, Reverend Schenck, and his lobbying tactics. And um, now none of this has been confirmed by us uh, and it's being denied by Alito. But with that in mind, I think the facts are absolutely fascinating, including some of his tactics yeah. uh, of lobbying. Yeah, it
2: really is. It's also fascinating what Alito has denied and what he hasn't denied, and I will get to that. So this comes, uh, the Reverend Rob Shank used to be a part of a group of uh, uh, anti-abortion activists, religious uh, anti-abortion activists. Um, and I, I think it's not just anti-abortion, just very religious conservatives who Uh, decided since, of course, the Supreme Court is not supposed to be subject to uh, external influence. They can't do things like, you know, there's no campaign to contribute to or anything like that because our law and constitution don't allow for that. But he got this idea and said, hey, what if we just got close to the justices, close enough to get within earshot to let them know, hey, we would like them to remember religious liberty, remember religious freedom, not advocating about any particular case, walking right up to the line without crossing it, perhaps. Well, over the past 10 plus years, that effort has been successful to the point that members of this group have been socializing with several justices on the U.S. Supreme Court. Those we know is the late Justice Antonin Scalia. We also know uh, Justice Clarence Thomas and his wife, Ginny, as well as Justice Samuel Alito and his wife, Martha Ann. So much so that one couple as a, that's a part of this group has been to the Alito's home and dined with them. These are the same people who... Uh, got access to the court, among other ways, through contributing six figures to the Supreme Court Historical Society. And that is, by, Alito, by Alito's own admission, that's the party admits, that how he got to know them and they became friends and that's how they gained this access. So that's where the pay to play comes in. Well, the allegation is that one member of this group somehow got wind of the result of that Hobby Lobby decision in 2014 before it was released. That is an absolute no-no at the U.S. Supreme Court. But this person, the Reverend Schenck, who found out about the result, was able to ready his PR campaign Uh, for this, for conservative groups to respond to this, what he saw in that case as a victory um, before that case was even announced. He scheduled a a prayer meeting and the release of a press release literally at the same minute that the uh, Supreme Court was releasing that opinion. So obviously he knew about it uh, beforehand. He alleges Alito denies that either he or his wife had anything to do with that leak. That doesn't mean that it doesn't leak. They're just denying that it did. But again, he Uh, Justice Alito seems to claim without any problem (laughs) that he did socialize and was hobnobbing with these people who were clearly advocating for a particular outcome in cases outside of the court. And that's an absolute no, no as well. I wrote a column this week in the Boston Globe. It's in the show notes, Um, digging into this a little more, but it's a real problem for the court.
3: And your piece is a really good thing to read. It really lays out what the problem is here um, and talks about some of the ways in which this concerted lobbying effort went forward way more than one would like to feel comfortable with. Um, But Joyce, that raises a question, what what Kim is just saying about, it's a no-no to leak an opinion. But is it actually illegal and why does it matter if an opinion is leaked before it's publicly released? Does it matter if the leak is to the press, or in this case to a, uh, somebody who was called by Reverend Schenck, a stealth missionary? Um, does that matter uh, when it's based on payments to the Supreme Court Historical Society is part of how they got access? So talk about that, please.
0: You know, I wonder if y'all have the same reaction to this series of questions and to this issue that I do, which is that on on the one hand, we engage on these issues because we must because they're presented by these facts. But at the same time, I am so um, taken aback by the fact that that we are here, that we are in a place where justices on the United States Supreme Court have become so careless with the reputation of the court that these are even questions that are being raised. Five years, 10 years ago, it would have been unthinkable for this sort of inquiry to be undertaken. And here's the reason. The Supreme Court doesn't have armies that go out and enforce its orders. We've talked about that a lot before on this podcast. Um, You know, courts' opinions are enforceable. We resolve our opinions peaceably in this country using the rule of law instead of, you know, dueling militias or whatever sort of violence could otherwise resolve issues because these institutions have integrity. And it's incumbent upon the people, the judges who populate these institutions, to ensure that their integrity with the community, with citizens, remains intact so that we can be a rule of law country. Um, So, yes, this absolutely matters. This is unconscionable. And the fact that the Supreme Court hasn't taken steps to rapidly correct courses, these increasing challenges to its integrity have mounted, I think are a little bit of a head scratcher. Um, Something is very badly broken and it does matter when these opinions leak, because it casts doubt on our ability to continue to be a country where the rule of law has integrity. You know, we, we've we talked about this as a pay-to-play sort of issue. I'm used to pay-to-play prosecutions when corrupt Um, politicians take money or favors from businesses or other entities in exchange for official decisions, and then we prosecute them under public corruption laws. This isn't quite in that same setting, but what's happening is that it's clear that people are able to pay for access to Supreme Court justices. And whether there's actually a bad result from that or not, whether anything is actually leaked, it so much impugns the court's integrity that it's a serious issue that has to be addressed. So your, your primary question, Jill, was, is it illegal? I think the answer is not in a sense where we're likely to see prosecutions. You could probably, in a technical way, find a statute that would fit Um But the question here that that really sticks with me and is troubling is who is responsible for these leaks? You know, early on, there was this almost witch hunt fervor towards looking at law clerks and getting their records and this sort of um, suggestion that maybe a law clerk had leaked. Now we're seeing that there could have been other points of access, including a couple of different justices. And I think we're entitled to know the answers to those questions. The truth here may be far more important than actually prosecuting
3: somebody. Right, and and you're right that we don't know that the opinion was changed by the early information. We only know that there was, or there seems to have been, early information. But there is some evidence that the Reverend um, did some prayers before uh, involving the justices, and he always managed to send a message to them about the importance of, religion in their decisions. So he was trying to influence the outcome at that point. Now, we don't know that it actually influenced them, but um, anyway, now we have, as you've noted, um, there have been two leaks recently, both in opinions by Justice Alito, um, and there have been several possible conflicts of interest involving Justice Thomas, where he has refused to recuse himself despite the obvious conflict. And so, Barb, I wanna talk about what does it mean in broad terms for the Supreme Court credibility that we have all this going on? And I think Joyce alluded to that as, you know, sort of what is the underlying really big problem. Uh, confidence in our institutions is what makes them go. It's what gives
1: them legitimacy. It is why we comply with the law. It's because we believe that they're acting in the best interests of the country. And when there is either an actual conflict or even the perception of a conflict, it undermines that confidence and it means that people are less likely to comply with the law. The Supreme Court, as you know, Jill, um, is is in a special category when it comes to ethics. Um They are, like all other judges, subject to recusal when there's an actual conflict of interest. So, you know, if if you have an immediate family member appearing in a case or uh, a financial interest at stake, then justices, like all judges, are supposed to recuse themselves. But they're not bound by the other ethical canons that apply to other judges, which say that they have to avoid not only impropriety, but also the appearance of impropriety. Uh, and so that's the one that causes most judges to recuse themselves when there's even an appearance of a conflict of interest. Instead, the Supreme Court says, yeah, they should consult by those rules, uh, but they are not bound by them because they are a co equal branch of government with Congress and the executive. And so we don't want to bind them too much. They can police themselves. Well, I'm not so sure they can. And I think that, you know, uh, Justice Thomas is a really interesting case in point. He has refused to recuse himself in matters involving uh, the production of documents, including email messages, some of which have included email messages from his wife, Jenny Thomas, talking about the, you know, the Stop the Steal effort. I think one could argue that he is biased in that he might have an interest in blocking the disclosure of those emails because they might cause, uh, her to be seen in a bad light or by reflection, him in a bad light. Uh, and it is also interesting that when the Supreme court decided the case of whether the national archives was required to turn over, uh, White House documents and emails. Um, Eight other justices said, yes, they they ruled quickly that 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 should be disclosed. Justice Thomas was the only justice who dissented from that case. And I think it does create the impression, at least a question, of whether he decided that based on the facts and the law or whether his curious dissent was instead based on some bias or uh, personal interest and, and perhaps a recusal would have been better there. So it's a serious problem uh, when our institutions are are losing credibility. and I think the court needs to be a little more mindful of the way they are regarded by the public.
3: I hope that they will be listening to you and that they will do something about this because I agree completely that something needs to be done. Well, just like the
1: public officials, Jill, uh, whom I've called upon to uh, lower the the temperature in their public discourse. (laughs) I know all the justices who listen to this podcast will heed that call and impose their own ethical uh,
2: constraints. Or members of Congress could pass a law to force them to. There ought to be
3: a law. Uh, There ought to be a law, but uh, Congress, of course, has this separation of powers problem about whether they can, in fact, regulate. No, there's not. No, Congress can absolutely
2: pass a law that imposes stronger ethical reporting requirements. They can pass a law that can uh, change the number of justices on the court. They can't change things about what the court's jurisdiction is and what they can appeal, but they can absolutely say, you must adhere to the same ethical standards passed by Congress for the other federal judiciary uh, as others. So I actually don't think that there is a constitutional
3: problem there at all. I I agree with you. I'm just saying what the court will argue, not that it's correct, but um, something else that uh, Joyce sort of hinted at was how outraged everybody was about the Dobbs leak and that there was going to be a serious investigation into who did it. And I I would point out that there was actually a leak of the Roe decision um, before it was released officially. But is there any news, Kim,
2: on the investigation into the Dobbs leak? Of course not. We knew, listen, (laughs) anybody who's watched this court... Uh, and knows how (laughs) loath they are to voluntarily say what is happening uh, behind the scenes, saw this coming, especially with the very careful way that the chief justice talked about this investigation when he announced it. He said that there would be an investigation. There would be a report. He didn't say what the investigation would look like, how long it would take, what this report would be, who would get the report if the report would ever be released public. He never said any of that. That was last term. The court is well into this term. The clerks who were working there last term are gone Um, who knows what else is going on I don't expect I think if there is there may be a memo that's distributed to the justices themselves or something and that could be all there is to this we may we may never hear a thing again so I want just want to prepare our listeners for never hearing about what the results of this particular (laughs) investigation is So there is still a lot going on with respect to the legal situation that the former president is facing. I want to uh, start with the appointment of a special counsel that happened just as we were recording uh, in our last episode, but Joyce wasn't here, so I wanted to start with her uh, to get your views, Joyce, about the appointment of a special counsel? Do do you think it was necessary? And and it seems that he's hit the ground running.
0: Yeah. You know, I don't think it was necessary in the sense that it was compelled, but I think it's come off surprisingly well given the uh, horde of commentators, um, including, um, I think, Some, if not all of us, who, before Merrick Garland made that decision, thought that a special counsel was unnecessary and might slow the investigation down— In fact, because this special counsel is operating in a very different environment from the environment Bob Mueller was in, in the sense that there's no legally operative guidance um, from the Justice Department to prosecutors that says you can't indict a former president, right? Mueller couldn't indict a sitting one. Trump is now a former president, so he's fair game for this special counsel but also this special counsel who is remarkably well-credentialed. He's been in Maine justice. He's been in U.S. attorney's offices. He's been in The Hague prosecuting war criminals, And he has hit the ground running um, even yesterday, right, filing a response um, in the 11th Circuit to something that Trump's lawyers had filed the previous day. So I think when he said, uh, as he was appointed, that he would get up to speed immediately and and wouldn't um, take a pause in the investigation, he's now shown us that he means business when he says that. And I think this decision is increasingly well-received by folks who want to see justice done.
2: Yeah. And Jill, uh, if you have any more thoughts about the special counsel, I'd love to hear them. But also, could you uh, bring us up to speed about arguments that were at the 11th Circuit this week in the challenge to the Mar-a-Lago search? How did that go? And has that changed your view at all about the appointment of a special master uh, in that investigation?
3: So I'm gonna answer all three of your questions. (laughs) The first is that um, in terms of the appointment of Jack Smith, it turns out, I think it's brilliant. Uh, I was very opposed at first, thinking that it was dismissive of the ability of the Department of Justice to do a independent and non-political, non-partisan investigation, which I felt they could do, and that I saw no obvious conflict And that the exceptional circumstances weren't exceptional enough in my mind. But I do think in retrospect, or at least now that I've seen what's happening, that this is much more like when Leon Jaworski took over for Archie Cox. We lost no time because the staff stayed. And so no, no time was lost. And I was really worried about time being lost in it starting all over again. So I'm very happy with his appointment and with his immediate jumping into this, including filing a letter this week in support of or in an answer to uh, a filing by the Trump lawyers. Um, secondly, in terms of the challenge to the Mar-a-Lago and the, this argument to the 11th Circuit, which is the one in which I'm referring to Jack Smith filing an unusual letter, um, the argument really went very well for the Department of Justice and very poorly for the Trump lawyers. Um, I think that there's no one who heard the argument who does not think that the court was sending clear message that they are going to rule in favor of the Department of Justice. Uh, and I believe that's as it should be. Nothing has changed my view about the appointment of a special master because I thought from the very beginning that it was a mistake and unnecessary and that the appointment was um, an indicia of Judge Cannon's inability to be um, fair in this case. So I think that the outcome is going to end up being exactly what I thought it should be, which is that there is no need for a special master to intervene here
2: and to delay
3: things and that will be a good outcome.
2: Yes, and so and, and it's confusing because we have the special master in the Mar-a-Lago case that is also a part of what the special counsel right. is looking at. These are two different people. I know that right. it's very confusing, but I'm going to make it a little more confusing. So I'm going to go back to the special counsel for a second, Jack Smith, and just say, <laughs> and and um, just very quickly, and y'all can tell me if you're wrong, and I know you say you, you've changed your mind about the appointment. I still worry very much about the decision to appoint. Um, I wish it had been done right at the beginning But the fact that it came and it was timed with uh, Donald Trump's announcement that he's running for re-election, I worry that that will give uh, the the – illusion, even if that's all there is, the Republicans are going to make it so that it's a lot more. The illusion that this was politically motivated. And just as we spoke about the Supreme Court, the court's uh, reputation is only as good as people's willingness to follow what they do because they believe that what they say is done in the interest of justice. I think that the results of this, in part, when it comes to how the American public accepts it, has to do with how they believe that this is an act of impartial justice and not a political act and at this moment I don't know if that will happen. And so y'all can tell me that I'm wrong.
3: Kim, I agree with you in you know, I I'm making the best of what yes. is by saying what I said, but my ideal solution would have been to make Jack Smith, the leader of this trial team, to hire Mm. him as a Department of Justice head of the team, because I think he adds significant value, not just because of his experience prosecuting a former president, not just because of everything that we have heard about him being a go-getter, hard-hitting fast decision-maker, someone who doesn't have to run the Department of Justice at the same time, which means he has more time to devote to thinking about all the details of this and to have a high-level presence that Merrick Garland could never have had because of all his other responsibilities. That would have been the best way to bring him in. I would have preferred that. But we have what we have, and I think it's not going to, one of my big concerns was delay. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't know why I didn't see the analogy to Jaworski taking over at first. It was because I was so angry about it happening and insulting the Department of Justice. Um, but I agree with you that it, it, was, it's, it was and is unnecessary, and it still creates a bad feeling. Um, and I also believe then and still believe that it isn't going to make it seem any more independent. No Trump supporter is going to accept Jack Smith, as being any more nonpartisan than anybody else at the department? And we've already seen that in their reactions.
0: You know, I think Merrick Garland's answer, at least if I'm reading his statement correctly, would be that the statute, the guidance that DOJ operates under for special counsel, says that when there are extraordinary um, circumstances, the attorney general will Appoint a special counsel. And he read Trump's announcement that he was running for the presidency in light of Biden's stated intention of running Mm -hmm. as an extraordinary circumstance. So I think that's the technical answer here. But I have questions like y'all do. And of course, one of the questions that I've always had is where was DOJ for the first year after (laughs) Merrick Garland took over? Why weren't there any overt signs of investigation? Those cropped up, you know, whatever, December, January. Um, of 21-22, and here we are now a year in with this special counsel only just now coming on board. So I think it's fair to question what led to this sort of timeline. Yeah, I would also
1: point out that Joyce, although he did say— the attorney general will appoint a special counsel under extraordinary circumstances. There's an awful lot of room for disagreement as to what constitutes extraordinary circumstances that require a special counsel. So yeah. I think it's still. I, a, I think you a discretionary and I both disagree,
0: right? Yeah, but, um, I think it's a discretionary call. I think that's call. what he's saying happens. Yeah. yeah, oh, I agree. I think I
1: think I think he agreed. He thought that it's necessary, and I think reasonable minds can disagree. I still think it was unnecessary. But like Jill, in light of the fact that it we we have it, I think it's going to be more efficient than less efficient. Because of the the singular focus that Jack Smith can place on this investigation, as opposed to the thousand things that Merrick Garland
0: has to focus on. And here's a really interesting data point. You know, Jack Smith was an acting U.S. attorney in the Nashville U.S. Attorney's Office during the Trump administration. He is a Trump U.S. attorney. They permitted him. They had no objection to him when he became the acting U.S. attorney in Nashville. So it's a little bit late to start raising um, questions about his, politica, his politics, I guess,
2: at this point. That's a good point, too. All right, Barb, there was still action happening in Georgia where District Attorney Fonnie Willis's investigation is moving along and had a high-profile witness this week. What happened?
1: Well that high profile witness was one Lindsey Graham, who had been fighting this subpoena for a long time. He um you know asserted uh, the speech or debate clause, saying that this would somehow interfere with his legislative work. Uh, that case went uh, through the courts ultimately to the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals, even the Supreme Court that said, "No, get in there and testify now they did put some restrictions in place to ensure. That uh, the prosecutors in Fulton County did not delve into legislative matters, um, as you know, they didn't intend to. They wanted to find out about calls that he made with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger about, you know, uh, counting votes. We know that there was that recorded conversation with Donald Trump where he talked about finding me eleven thousand seven hundred and eighty votes. So that's what Fannie Willis wants to look into, Um, and she did last week. He testified; Uh, he was there for a couple of hours. By all accounts, he answered the questions. He thought he was treated respectfully, and so she got what she needed from him. And I'll tell you, she is—you um, um, know—taking care of business down there. She's had Rudy Giuliani in the grand jury, John Eastman. Boris Epstein, Brian Kemp, the uh, the governor of the state, um, she's still trying to get some others in who continue to resist in court battles, like uh, Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff, Mike Flynn, and Newt Gingrich. Uh, she's still working on on some of those folks. But you know, the goal is you've got to find out all of the potential information to determine whether you have a chargeable case. It is even though a case could be charged on the basis of probable cause, prosecutors typically don't charge until they believe they have sufficient evidence to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. And that means you have to turn over every stone to anticipate defenses. So what you don't want is to have enough evidence for probable cause, charge a case, and then have people... Uh, like Lindsey Graham or Mark Meadows or other kinds of people come in and present testimony you've never heard before that creates some sort of defense. You want to know all of that stuff up front. Also, you know, if if they were there making these phone calls, is there something incriminating about those calls that that uh, uh, Fannie Willis needs to know to assess any charges in this case? So, you know, the law says that uh, the grand jury is entitled to every person's uh, testimony. And that is true whether you're a member of Congress or a former member of Congress or a governor or, or a vice president or a president. And so um, she is taking care of business there and, and moving and making progress.
2: And, and finally, Joyce, just when I thought we were done, at least for the time being, talking about Alvin Bragg and certainly about Stormy Daniels, here we are talking about them both again. Why do you think uh, Alvin Bragg is looking into Trump again after putting the last... Probe in the uh, Manhattan office on ICE when we the way we talked about it before.
0: Yeah, I mean it's interesting, right? These reports have surfaced that Bragg is looking uh, at the Stormy Daniels matter that Michael Cohen was successfully prosecuted for by the federal government, and thinking about whether there might be a New York State charge based on the creation of false business records when Stormy Daniels the payment that was issued to her. Um, was improperly accounted as a legal expense when in fact it was an illegal expense, a bribe. Um, Interesting sort of use of the statute. I'm not as bullish on this one as, as some folks are, Kim. I'm not sure that we really are gonna be hearing a lot about this. For one thing, there's a statute of limitations issue. They're they're well past the statute of limitations. There are some ways around that. There's a suggestion that it didn't run because Trump was out of state or perhaps because there was a cover-up and, and the uh, statute of limitations extends when you have a cover-up for a conspiracy. So I suppose that's possible. But as a matter of New York state law, in order for the charge to be a felony, you've got to be able to prove that the business record was falsified in an effort to commit another crime. And that might mean that this charge, even if it could be proven, would just be a misdemeanor. Mm -hmm. So I I wanna wait and see as to whether Bragg is seriously pursuing this one. He's still in the middle of the criminal case against the Trump Organization. That hasn't concluded yet. Um, And there's no suggestion that he has gone to the grand jury on these new charges. When and if that happens, then I think we should take it seriously. But for now, I see a lot of legal impediments to moving forward with this at this point
2: in time. And uh, finally, just to wrap up, who says that a holiday week is slow? The DOJ is uh, interested in talking to Mike Pence in connection with their uh, investigation into uh, January 6th. Of course, I think that's something they obviously should do if Mike Pence, who has been on a book tour, uh, can talk about what happened on January 6th to uh, push his memoir sales. He certainly can talk to the DOJ, as I believe he should have spoken to the January 6th committee in Congress as well, but we will keep you posted as to whether uh, he does testify and what we might learn from that.
0: Well, before we conclude for the week, we get to answer some questions from our listeners. This is our favorite part of the show. We really love your questions. They are always very thought-provoking, and they are this week. If you have a question for us, please email them to us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using the hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your questions during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds during the week. We try to answer as many questions as we have time for. Our first question this week is for you, Barb. It's from Myrna, and she asks What are the benefits of a civics education? Do you think we do enough to teach civics in schools? That one seems straight up your alley. Oh, Myrna, we are on the same page, sister. Um, Civics
1: are so important, I think, to understanding how our government works. I think if we don't understand how our government works, it is so easy for people to pull the wool over our eyes and suggest that, you know, we're being run by some global elite cabal. Uh, But I think we're not doing enough for civics education. You know, if you ever watch these, uh, you know, these late night talk shows where people do the man on the street interviews and ask people to name a Supreme Court justice or name one of the three branches of government, you know, people just stare at them blankly. Uh, it's really an embarrassment. Jill, I know you were talking about how in Australia they understand American politics. Same is true in Canada or, or Great Britain. And not, not only do they understand their own, but they understand the politics of the world. And I think we are, we are spending so much time, you know, focused on other things. We are obsessed with celebrity gossip and reality television shows and not focused enough. And I think if we could give people a stronger foundation in civics. Yeah. You know, teaching uh, kids how to vote, how to how to research what's on the ballot. Um, I, I think we presume that most young people will get that kind of instruction from their families, but that's not true in every family. And so I think we have an obligation
0: in our public schools to develop strong citizens by teaching civics. Kim, we had similar questions from Katie and Stephanie. They asked about something that I think is in your wheelhouse, whether there's a case to prevent Trump from running using the 14th Amendment or other post-Civil War era laws. What do you think?
2: Yeah, so I think the answer is yes and no. So I think what they are getting at is in the 14th Amendment, there is a disqualification clause that prevents someone from running from f- for federal office, including the presidency, if uh, they have, quote, engaged. Engaged in insurrection or rebellion. And the idea is if Donald Trump is, say, convicted. Uh, of his role in the January 6th attack, could that be considered disqualifying? The answer is unclear. The the experts that I've been talking to over the past uh, year or so about this believe that it's likely that this isn't self-executing. It means that it needs another statute to be passed, an executing statute that creates the power to prevent someone from being put on the ballot in such case. Now, it would also require some finding, some conviction, something that Donald Trump did engage in insurrection or rebellion. It will take that other step, too. But there is uh, uh, reportedly, according to The Hill, um, Congressman David Cicilline and others are floating legislation that would do this very thing. So we'll have to wait and see whether that can get passed in lame duck in time. Highly unlikely. But um, and whether Donald Trump will either be even be convicted of, of anything or there will be some sort of binding finding that he did engage in an insurrection is still unknown. But the power is there. It's just whether the levers exist to execute it.
0: It's a really interesting question, and I suspect it's one we'll be discussing um, as this uh, campaign really gets underway. Um, uh, Another related question, uh, Jill, for you, and and again, we had similar questions in this regard from several of our listeners, including Pat and Phil, who's in San Francisco, California. The question is this, would you discuss the difference between a special counsel and a special prosecutor? Some news reports and commentators have used the two terms interchangeably.
3: Is there a difference?
0: I suspect, Jill, that you have the institutional knowledge to answer this one. (laughs)
3: I do. And there is a difference. And there's a third term, which is independent counsel. Um, And the difference is the law under which they serve. So I was a assistant special prosecutor because that was the regulations and law that we were appointed under. In between, there came an independent counsel. And now there's new rules and regs, which create a special counsel And each of them has different powers. I would say in an ideal world, we'd go back to the special prosecutor legislation under which I served, because we had more independence from the Department of Justice than subsequent holders of that title. And and I would say that right now, special counsel is really just a Department of Justice employee. They are governed by all the rules and regs of the department. They report to the attorney general. The attorney general can reject their recommendations, makes the final decision. We saw it abused by Attorney General Barr in releasing the Mueller report. He first issued a press conference in which he said, there's nothing here, folks. And it became very hard to undo the impression he created that there was no collusion, Um, no conspiracy, which was untrue when you read the report. So I would like to go back to having rules and regs that are creating the special prosecutor like Archie Cox was. Thank you for listening to
0: Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Weinbanks, Barb McQuaid, Kimberly Atkins-Store, and me, Joyce Vance. Remember to share your biggest learnings or takeaways from the show with us on Twitter and Instagram for our upcoming 100th full episode using hashtag SistersInLaw100. That's hashtag SistersInLaw100. We can't wait to hear from you. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw@politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag SistersInLaw. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our pale blue tea, our hoodie, and other goodies. It's almost Christmas. The timing is just right. And please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Lomi, Calm, Aura, and Osea Malibu. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them. They really help to make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow Hashtag SistersinLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It helps others find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law.
2: I hope he becomes... Sorry about that. There's never a bad time for the Indigo Girls. You don't have to apologize. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and it wasn't Frisbee who did it. Trace, is that know, your ring you for ringtone? Your Indigo Girls
0: ringtone? It's my alarm tone because it keeps me from getting uptight when I hear the Indigo Girls. It makes me happy even though I have something I have to do. I love it. You're such a
1: woman of a certain age. <laughs> I love
0: the, as am I. Yes, I love the indigo yes girls too. it's okay. You can call me old. I am. I own it. <laughs> yeah, we're just, you know, a certain age. Excellent.